Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This episode of Reaganism features the recording of a Reagan Institute event titled National Security in U.S. Manufacturing. How can America compete in the 21st century that took place on May 20th, 2021? The event features Eric Chuning, McKenzie partner and former chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense, Marilyn Hewson, the former president and CEO of Lockheed Martin, Dan Bryant, senior vice president at Walmart, and Dr. Katie George, another senior partner at McKenzie & Company. The event will focus on the implications and recommendations of the McKinsey Global Institute's recently released report, Building a More Competitive U.S. Manufacturing Sector. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Everyone and welcome. I'm Roger Zakheim, director of the Reagan Institute, home of the Reagan Foundation in the nation's capital. We're excited to have you join us for an important conversation about the future of manufacturing in America. Manufacturing plays an outsized role in American economy, employing 8% of the workforce, constituting 11% of GDP, and making up 60% more than half of exports. Nevertheless, it's no secret that this sector has been struggling over the last few decades, and leaders from both sides of the political aisle have called for a revival of American manufacturing. The health of American manufacturing has long been understood to have implications for national security. 21st century, great power competition, technological advances, and supply chain dependencies revealed by a global pandemic have renewed the importance of the intersection between our national security and our economic competitiveness. So the health of American manufacturing is long understood to have implications for national security. To address these issues, as I mentioned, the Reagan Institute recently launched a task force to convene prominent thought leaders, current and former public officials and business executives to tackle this problem. The work of the task force is underway and we'll be publishing a report with findings and recommendations ahead of the 2021 Reagan National Defense Forum in December. To the benefit of our task force, the McKinsey Global Institute has done some hard work looking at trends within US manufacturing in granular detail and thinking through ways policymakers can make a difference. We'll start today's event with Eric Tuning, a partner at McKinsey and former chief of staff to the Secretary of Defense, providing a briefing on the key findings and recommendations of the recently released report building a more competitive U.S. manufacturing sector. Eric will then moderate a conversation with Marilyn Houston, co-chair of the Reagan Institute Task Force and former chairman, president, and CEO of Lockheed Martin, as well as two of our task force members, Dan Bryant, senior vice president at Walmart, and Katie George, senior partner at McKinsey & Co. I hope you enjoyed the conversation we've planned for today. And with that, I'll turn it over to Eric. Eric? Great. Well, thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to join the Reagan Institute on a discussion about national security in U.S. manufacturing and to serve as a knowledge partner to the Institute's task force on American manufacturing competitiveness, a topic that President Reagan championed and promoted, perhaps most notably through his commission on industrial competitiveness, which specifically made the connection between an internationally competitive U.S. manufacturing sector with a rising standard of living for all Americans U.S. global leadership, and U.S. national security. It was in that spirit my colleagues and I at the McKinsey Global Institute explored 
what it would take to build a, a more competitive U.S. manufacturing sector. For those who haven't read the report, I'll hit a few of the highlights before we move over to our panel discussion. All right. Um, well, I think it starts with uh, a recognition that there's growing U.S. government focus on the nexus of national security and supply chains. Um, when you think about the work that was done in the last administration, particularly in the 13806 report, looking at the intersection of national security and manufacturing uh, work that I led uh, on the behalf of the Department of Defense and the president, um, and then the continuation of that now with President Biden and the work and the executive order being done now with the 14001 executive order. And then the work that's currently underway with the House Armed Services Committee, specifically the task force by Representative Slotkin and Representative Gallagher on defense critical supply chains. And all of this effort on, on manufacturing and supply chains really is, is noticeable simply because as you indicated, Roger, manufacturing has an outside impact on the US economy. Uh, U.S. manufacturing directly accounts for about 8% of the U.S. workforce. Uh, it accounts for 11% of U.S. GDP, but it makes a disproportional amount of impact to the broader economy. It's responsible for 20% of our net capital stock, 35% of our productivity growth, 55% of our patents, you know, 60% of our export activity, and then 70% of our R&D spending. In addition to that, there's knock-on benefits uh, in terms of the demand at spurs and related industries uh, that are services related. And then finally, manufacturing is a critical employer to our local economy, both large and small and medium enterprises across the country. And so manufacturing is critically, critically important. Now, as has been indicated, the manufacturing sector in the US has been um, uh, mixed scene of late. Uh, if you look at the chart on the left, what you can see is going back to 1997, we've lost about 4.6 million jobs in manufacturing since then. Uh, we've also maintained uh, for relatively limited production growth and uh, manufacturing percent of GDP has also grown at about 2%. Now it stabilized after the, the, the great recession in 2008, but we haven't returned to the levels that we saw in the late 1990s. Like what's also most notable in this is if you look at the bar on the top, we've seen a 3.1 uh, times increase in our deficit, uh, trade deficit uh, in manufacturing as a result of this. And on the right-hand side, you can see where that trade balance really was most impacted. So on the top, the industry most impacted by that shift in trade were auto and auto parts, then pharmaceuticals and general machinery. Now, some industries have actually been able to maintain and grow our trade balance, most notably aircraft and, and defense equipment. But what you can see from this chart is, while manufacturing has, has stabilized to an extent, we're, we're far off where we were from a 20-year high um, in the late 1990s. Now, this trade imbalance also has another interesting implication. What you see here is percentages of value-added input consumption where it comes from. Now, on the left-hand side is, North, is the United States. 71.1% of our value-added inputs into manufacturing come from within our region, so come within North America. That means 29% we get from outside of North America. This is significantly higher than other industrialized economies. When you look at what's going on in Japan or Germany, or particularly in China, where in China, uh, almost 90% of their trade occurs within the region and they're getting inputs from only about 10% outside of the region. Now, we took this picture and we said, okay, uh, all manufacturing isn't necessarily created equally. 
where, if you were to focus on a particular set of manufacturing sectors, should you focus? And so we took 30 different industries and, and divided them up by their, their NAICS codes and said, okay, well, let's screen for these. And so we screened essentially around three criteria. The first is we said, all right, what industry sectors are going to have an outsized impact on productivity and economic growth, right? Because we wanted to isolate the industries that have experienced rapid GDP growth and are expected to continue to have an outside impact on GDP growth. The second set of industries we screened for is we said, all right, let's identify industries that are gonna have a dispersed economic benefits across workers and smaller firms and a wider geographic footprint, right? Let's make sure we're picking the sectors that just don't benefit the coast, but they benefit everyone living in the middle of the country in rural communities, as well as near big cities. And then finally, a third screening criteria was, all right, well, let's screen for innovation and competitiveness. What industries do we see intensifying competition and are associated with higher levels of R&D spend and increases in productivity growth? And when we did that, what we found is there were 16 industries that came through, uh, through that screening criteria. And not surprisingly, these 16 also very important to the supply base for our defense and aerospace sectors and then we're also indicated as we think about the national security reviews we do for CFIUS or for BIS. And so those focus industries you see there on the right-hand side, everything from aircraft and defense equipment to auto parts, all the way through our special purpose machinery. Now, when you, when you double click into those 16 industries, you find that there are really four different types of manufacturing activities that occur, right? So the way I think about this is you can't, just sort of lump all of all of manufacturing together and say, all right, manufacturing firms all compete the same way. That's really not true. What our, our research would suggest is that you really can find four distinct archetypes in the way manufacturing firms compete. And sometimes a, a single firm may actually be different archetypes put together or different industries may represent uh, several different archetypes. And, and I'll explain what I mean here in a minute. Uh, the first archetype that we really focused on is the one people traditionally think of when you say manufacturing is what we described in the report is scale-based, you know, manufacturing activities that are really driven by standardization and they're really specialized for mass production, right? So this is, you know, really big capital intensive plants, long tail supply chains, high worker intensity, uh, you know, examples here might be steel and auto components for an example. The next type of archetype that we focused on the report were, was the archetype really where learning curves and exponential growth from learning um, drive the economics. And, and to be clear, learning curve benefits occur across industries, but there are a couple of where it's really, really important. Uh, think semiconductor chip foundries, for example, right? Scale and process design really, really matters in semiconductor chip foundries. Uh, same thing with advanced batteries, right? And so these learning curve industries um, uh, really created a distinct set of a second type of archetype. You know, the third were, were, were uh, business models really designed around uh, research design and concepts around new products, right? So here I would compare, think about a, like a fabulous semiconductor design, right? So, you know, the, when you think about the semiconductor industry, you can't, you can't brush it all with one, one brush. You really need to differentiate the different models, right? A, a global foundries, for example, will operate on a learning curve basis. Someone like uh, Qualcomm is going to be more of an R&D centric uh, archetype model. Um, other things that would fall into that category would be computer systems design, for example, things where the real differentiation is around the R&D. And again, elements of R&D are important to all industrial 
activities. But uh, this particular archetype is, 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 where it, is where it really matters. And then finally, there's a, a fourth category that's emergent, uh, which we call flexible, right? And this is about how do you produce high value, low volume activities using flexible capacity, right? Think about the satellite manufacturing example or personalized medical devices or, custom, or customized machinery, right? And so these four different archetypes make up the 16 different industries that we screen for as being the most important for US manufacturing. So let's see how those industry, uh, these archetypes are, are performing in the US. That'll be our next slide. So what you can see is we took the four archetypes there on the left-hand side and we said, okay, um, if we look at the performance of these archetypes over time, what's really occurring? Well, not surprisingly, what you've seen in the scale-based um, archetype is that as a percentage of US companies uh, in their industries globally, it's gone down. Um, with the, in terms of a percentage change in U.S. employment, it's also gone down. And the number of establishments in the United States that we would characterize as scale-based have also been decreased. You know, similarly, we saw uh, uh, the comparable effects on the learning curve, right? That archetype has also seen a decrease in terms of U.S. US share of global GDP, change in US employment, and the number of US companies that are operating this way as activities in both scale-based and learning curve have migrated offshore. Uh, where you've seen the biggest increase and where the United States has, has seen uh, the most advancement over this period is in the research and design-based activities, right? Where we've actually seen an increase in US companies as a share of global GDP. We've seen a significant increase in US employment in these, as well as an increase in the number of firms that are operating this way or that are starting this way uh, here in the US. And then finally, the flexible has been also a bit of a mixed picture, uh, a little less uh, decline than you've seen in scale-based and learning curves. And so when you say, okay, this is interesting, how these different archetypes have evolved, wh why is that and what do we see that's going on? Well, you know, on scale-based, I think what we see is that industries that are operating this way have high labor intensity, and that's maced, and that's and that's been one of the drivers of moving scale-based activities offshore. I think similarly, when you look at what's going on in the scale-based uh, archetypes, small and mid-sized manufacturers in particular have struggled to make the right level of capital investments they need to, to stay up with increases in productivity. And so as a result, we're seeing slowed productivity growth. Uh, on the learning curve, uh, I think what we're seeing here is because of the huge capital requirements associated with the learning curve. I mean, think about the capital investments required for a semiconductor foundry, for example, you know, is at least, you know, $5 billion uh, with, you know, comparable levels of operating expenses over time. Um, the business cases just aren't, aren't, aren't working here in the U.S. And so that's driving investors away from learning curve activities in favor of the design activities, which are less capital intensive. Uh, we've also noticed a gap in the specialized talent and know-how needed to operate these things, right? And so think about the, the process engineering capability, for example, has also migrated and slowed down this capability growth. On the, on the research and design-based activities, I think we've seen a couple of, of things that have proved to be tailwinds. You know, one is U.S. firms have self-selected in this archetype because it does provide high returns and there's availability of scientific talent here in the U.S. And because of the ability to provide high wages, this archetype has attracted top talent. And then finally, on the flexible side, uh, it's I think a combination of tailwinds and headwinds. And what we've noticed on the on the hell, on the headwind side is that U.S. firms have been slower than than our competitors in Western Europe and East Asia are that to adapt the types of Industry 4.0 technologies that are really going to drive the state of the art here. 
Um, but what we do see is because of the large size of the U.S. population, proximities to customers is this distinct advantage, giving U.S. firms an opportunity to capitalize on a large domestic base. And so, you know, when you when you take this and you say, okay, well, what would need to potentially change to make this picture different over time? One of the indications you would want to see is an increase in investment in what we call Industry 4.0 technologies. And so, as a metric for this. Uh, when you look at the World Economic Forum's 69 Industry 4.0 lighthouses, only seven are here in the United States. And you compare that with say 20 in China or five in Germany. Um, and so this is troubling when you think about the impact of Industry 4.0 technologies and US competitiveness. This is a key element of what we need to do to turn around US manufacturing. And we're not making necessary investments to drive this going forward. Now, industry productivity is just one element of this. Um, but there is a good news story, right? And I think what we found in our research was given the shift in global trade, um, if we get our manufacturing house in order here, you could see a $275 billion boost to GDP, right? On the downside, up to $460 billion with another 1.5 million jobs added to our economy by, by, by 2030. And so I think that's the good news here, right? That if we take this moment in time to, to address the challenges we have in our US manufacturing sector, um, it's going to have very, very positive impact for both the U.S. worker as well as the overall U.S. economy. So what do we need to do to get there? Uh, our report identified five specific things. The first, starting with capital investment, right? Uh, it's clear that we've got to address gaps between the interests of private capital and the needs for a resilient manufacturing sector. Um, what we've noticed in our report is that the manufacturers here in the U.S. actually have higher capital uh, higher capital costs than manufacturers elsewhere. One indication may be it's simply because our capital markets aren't accounting for all the positive externalities associated with manufacturing firms. Um, and so, if you are creating a new semiconductor foundry, for example, that's going to require a five billion dollar investment, right? Um, if you're not getting the capital necessary to do that here in the United States, or the or the benefits from the government to do that here in the United States, you're doing that outside of the U.S. And I think of note, you know, over the weekend, some of you may have seen the announcements the, the South Korean government announced actually around what they were doing to bolster their domestic semiconductor sector. Um, similarly, capital investments necessary for modernization of the of the, of the aged equipment across all of our small and medium suppliers across the United States, right? We've estimated the need to upgrade this up to about $25 billion per year. Uh, when you look at the small and medium enterprises but large across the US economy. And, 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 and these challenges are gonna require uh, in many ways a different way of sort of the public and private sectors working together to address these capital gaps. I think the second area we identified in the report was around specialized talent. Um, as production technology changes, so too must the workforce, right? And so what we noted in the report was that real wages for production workers have only increased about 6% since 1997 in the United States, while the US medium income has risen by 34%, right? So are we, are we rewarding workers who self-select to work in manufacturers sufficient to maintain the type of specialized talent we need in that sector? Our report would suggest we're not. Uh, and you also see that from when talking with manufacturers themselves. You know, one industry survey found that technical skills gap to be the most likely cause of a derailed manufacturing plants over the next two to four years. And increasingly what we're hearing from folks is movement to, to manufacturing offshore um, isn't, isn't, isn't because US productivity costs are too high, it's simply because they can't find the talent with the right skills. Um, and that's something that, again, you know, the public and private sectors will need to work together to address. 
Third column there is around productivity and know-how. And, and US, the US must be capable of producing critical goods at competitive prices, right? Uh, here you look at labor productivity growth, which has averaged less than 2% per year since 2009 um, in 10 of our 16 focus industries. What you'd wanna see is that productivity growth much higher than that. Because uh, what we found is that industries with higher productivity growth have been heavy in learning curve activities. And, and increasingly, again, I'll use semiconductor foundries as a good example here. There's intensifying competition uh, for, those, for, those, for those types of capacity. And it's something that we've all identified, uh, particularly here of late, as something that's critical for US national security. Um, so US firms are gonna need to capitalize on these emerging productivity technologies to boost productivity growth, right? And again, you know, think back to that World Economic Forum chart that said of all of the 69 lighthouses across the world, only seven are here in the United States, 20 of them are in China. Uh, finally, the, the, the two other areas we mentioned in the report, uh, first, resilient supplier ecosystems. You know, firms thrive in an ecosystem surrounded by suppliers and research institutions. Uh, you see pockets of this here in the US, but uh, we're gonna have to do more. Uh, some of those examples include sort of the biotech clusters we have in Massachusetts and in North Carolina, I think the research triangle, um, as well as auto plants and suppliers still in the Midwest or the emerging semiconductor uh, ecosystem we see in Arizona. Um, but again, this is an area where firms, states, and the federal government are going to have to work together to recognize the positive externalities of having these types of ecosystems um, and the need for, for a joint approach, right? If you're going to put in place a large semiconductor fab, you're going to have to make sure the local utilities can meet the power requirements, can meet the water requirements. You're going to have to make sure the local community school infrastructure can provide the appropriate research and engineering and process talent. They're going to have to make sure that the capital incentives are in place so that the companies are going to make a return that favors putting that in the United States as opposed to somewhere else. And then finally, um, it's this idea around how do we level the glowing playing field? I think increasingly we've noted that US firms exist in a global landscape. And in, in some contexts, we're actually at a disadvantage, right? Uh, it's a combination, I think, of being squeezed by investor expectations, uh, currency overvaluation, as well as the large public subsidies in competitive nations, as well as some of the regulatory differences, all these things add up together to provide inherent disadvantage for US manufacturers. Um, you know, one example you could point to is what, the, what Germany successfully done with their Fraunhauer Institutes, right? Those provide technical and business support to manufacturing small and medium enterprises. Uh, it has eight times the budget and 15 times the staffing as our US manufacturing enterprise partnership run by the Department of Commerce. Um, and so again, I think it's important that policymakers understand how these disadvantages manifest in firm level decisions. And, and in some ways, this is what makes this challenge so hard, right? Is that you need to be able to have a macroeconomic conversation, a policy conversation, and then draw those insights down to firm level decisions, right? And how that broader environment will impact firm level decisions. So uh, one, one more note, uh, you know, there, we've been able to produce a fair amount on this topic, uh, both the, the report on competitive U.S. manufacturing, as well as uh, other activities around supply chain resiliency. And if you're interested, you know, certainly, um, certainly uh, visit the website to, to find more. I know we, we went through this fairly quickly, but I'm excited to uh, welcome my colleagues on here for the panel. Um, so if Marilyn and Katie and Dan, if you would join me, that'd be terrific. Thank you. Marilyn, how are you? Very good. Good morning, Eric. Good morning, Katie, how are you? Good morning. Good, Dan? Good morning. Awesome. 
Well, uh, it's really a, a, a privilege and a joy to be here with you to talk about this topic. Um, you know, maybe just I'll do a quick set of introductions. I know Roger hit some at the top, but yeah, first I'll introduce someone who, who spent their entire career leading at the intersection of U.S. manufacturing and national security. Uh, Marilyn Houston is the former chairman, president, and CEO of Lockheed Martin. Marilyn is also the co-chair, along with David McCormick, of the Reagan Institute's task force on national security and U.S. manufacturing based competitiveness. So thank you, Marilyn, for joining us. Um, also, we've got, uh, on the, as well as on the panel, as well as the task force, Dan Bryant. Dan leads Walmart's global public policy efforts and is a government affairs activities, uh, both in Washington, DC, as well as internationally. And then finally, my colleague uh, from McKinsey, Katie George. Uh, Katie is a fellow task force member, as well as a co-author of the MGI report. So Katie, you should clean up anything I got wrong and misrepresented. Um, Katie is a senior partner uh, based in New Jersey. Uh, she's also a North American leader and co-convener of McKinsey's operations practice and is a member of McKinsey's Global Governance Board, our Shareholders Council. So again, thank you all. Um, Marilyn, maybe the first question for you, uh, from your vantage point leading America's largest defense contractor, how would you describe the state of U.S. manufacturing and, and how does that inform what you hope to accomplish with the task force? Well, good morning, Eric, and good morning to my colleagues on the panel today and, and all of you that are listening in. And I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's really a pleasure to be focused on this very important topic for our nation. Uh, you know, as you said, Eric, I've been in the industry almost four decades, and I have seen what American manufacturing, and particularly in the aerospace and defense industry, can do, just the tremendous ingenuity and innovation of our manufacturing base and our talent that we have all of the things that we've been able to accomplish with our partners in the small and medium-sized businesses across the nation and frankly allies. And so we, we've had, I've had, you know, had the opportunity to see just the amazing things we can do, but I've also seen how much manufacturing has changed over that time. And we have definitely seen an erosion, particularly in the aerospace and defense industry, but across manufacturing, we've seen, you know, the rising China, what we've seen with the China's uh, competitiveness, and also, frankly, their theft of intellectual property and the challenges that that's brought. We've also seen over the course of the, the last several years what's happened with offshoring. You know, we have some companies that, that are providing critical components. Some of them are providing the only, they're the only supplier. And so you see the dependency that we have on suppliers and how important it is that that supply chain is robust and strong. And then as you look back, and those of you that are so interested in defense, you, you recognize what we went through with sequestration and the, the budget instability that we often face in the defense industry and, and trying to have that uh, long run development and production of products and capabilities. And then the regulations that, that our small and medium sized businesses and large businesses face and how that can have some impact. I'll finally say the trend that I've seen is particularly in the digitization and and you, you touched on that, uh, Eric, in your, in your um, the McKinsey Global Institute study about how that is changing and how we've got to stay abreast of it, not only in the way that we invest, but also in the way that we invest in our people and reskill them and upskill them and train them and educate them so that that talent can be ready. So I'm excited to be co-chairing with David McCormick uh, this task force that we have with the Reagan National Defense Forum and the support from McKinsey on that. We just have a tremendous group of leaders on the program. I mean, on the task force, we're meeting regularly. We're hearing from others in industry and, and academia and, and those that have spent a lot of time in their 
careers studying this challenge that we have as a nation. And I know that what we, what we hope to bring out of this is true actionable recommendations that allow government and private industry and universities and others to step up and improve the manufacturing base. Because as Eric has just shown you through the data, it is absolutely critical to our economic security and to our national security. So I'm, you know, from a perspective of somebody who's been in, in manufacturing and technology my entire career, I'm excited to be part of the task force. I'm also recognizing the absolute urgency of what this nation needs to do to bolster our manufacturing base. That's great. No, well, well said, Marilyn. I, and, and Dan, you know, from your, your lens, working with the largest retailer in the world, you know, how do you think about this challenge? Thank you, um, Eric and Roger and the team there for this great convening. Um, kudos on the McKinsey report. We think it's a really important contribution. Um, let me share a few quick highlights on our, our past and current US manufacturing initiatives. And we, we've, we have some important lessons that we've learned that may be relevant to, uh, to this conversation today. We, we announced earlier this spring a 350 billion US manufacturing initiative over the next 10 years. So the initiative is a commitment to source 350 billion in new goods made, grown, or assembled in the US. The effort will support, uh, thankfully, 750,000 new US jobs. It will help to diversify and deepen our US supplier base. And it will provide a real shot in the arm for US entrepreneurs that we, of course, engage and depend on. Oh, by the way, it will eliminate uh, 100 uh, metric uh, tons, 100 million metric tons of CO2 emissions. So uh, the, the, the ancillary benefits are, are really remarkable. Walmart's been focused on our US suppliers for five plus decades. Two thirds of everything we, we sell in the US today is made, grown, or assembled in the US. And we've tried to concentrate our efforts to promote US sourcing previously. And along the way, we've been in constant communication with our suppliers regarding how to help them grow. And we have learned an awful lot. And we are now uh, starting out with a renewed commitment, a doubling down on our US sourcing efforts. So we think the timing of this, this broader joined up focus on US manufacturing, this cross sector, cross industry effort, is exactly right. Certainly, you look at how the, the, the pandemic has played out. It has us, all of us, exploring every possible way to invest in small businesses and suppliers and communities. We think of the extraordinary role that the textile industry played, stepping up and providing PPE during COVID, especially during those first crucial months. It's, it's, it's heartening to see the widely acknowledged need to revitalize US manufacturing everywhere that it makes sense, and frankly, that it will, it will go better and faster and get stronger the more planful we are. And that's where we're, we are really trying to, to focus in. It's also obviously a smart way, a timely way to leverage uh, the many and growing USG investments in workforce and technology. And then of course, again, learning from COVID, we, we see that supply chains uh, are strained or can quickly become strained. So, um, I would note, Eric, that the, the immediate backdrop that informs our new U.S. manufacturing commitment is our prior commitment, a 10-year, 250 billion commitment 
to increase our purchases of goods, U.S. goods. That commitment is on track to be met, uh, perhaps even a bit ahead of schedule. So this new commitment builds on that is, and is an additional $350 billion on top of that. We, we succeeded with our prior commitment by focusing on increasing our purchases with existing suppliers and also encouraging reshoring of select products by facilitating and accelerating the efforts of our suppliers. We also work to source new to Walmart goods that support American jobs. But the effort has really been about Walmart partnering and problem solving with our suppliers to remove the obstacles that they encounter as they're trying to start and grow. And candidly, we have learned that by ourselves as that, as that strategic partner, we can only take it but so far. A clear hindrance to our overall effort was the way that many suppliers were in wide ranging sectors from, from bikes to utility cans and everything in between. So there were wide ranging differing incentives and headwinds corresponding to those far flung sectors. Nothing like steel and aluminum tariffs to throw a monkey wrench in trash can and flatware manufacturing. So with our, our new 350 billion initiative, we've shifted. We've shifted our strategy to enable bigger moves to happen than is possible with a bunch of one-off incremental efforts. So we're now pushing for a bolder, even structural approach that enables larger systemic moves uh, that can lead to more impactful uh, and sustained uh, change and growth. That brings us, Eric, finally to the, the ecosystem approach that, that you all have, have highlighted in your study. Uh, let me say simply that we love it. We think the wisdom of that approach has been borne out over decades of our own experience. Our new 350 billion effort is underpinned by a focus on building ecosystems, which for us concretely means enlisting retailers, manufacturing partners and distributors, uh, raw material providers, capital funding, local state federal players, economic development agencies and other stakeholders, including universities and industry associations. So we're calling these support ecosystems American Lighthouses. American Lighthouse, which is a name that gets at the acknowledged need that in order to promote US manufacturing, we need to chart a clearer course and we need to help businesses navigate the barriers to US production. So we're seeking to align more effectively with all participants from the supplier community, manufacturers, NGOs, everything in between. In a real sense, we're moving from a Walmart approach to a multi-stakeholder approach. We, we, we're convinced these businesses, our suppliers need us and they need uh, more than us. They need more than us to grow in a sustained way. So we like to think we're necessary, but our experience shows us candidly that we're not sufficient. So our hope is that the lighthouses become a place-based center of US manufacturing excellence where all of the necessary component players are able to come together as they see how the whole can, can truly become larger than the sum of its parts. So one of the key features, uh, Eric, that we have, we have come to, to view as essential is, is that in order to promote this sustained uh, growth, we have to bring key regions and key stakeholders together around specific supply chains. So we looked at various factors in selecting priority categories for US manufacturing, including uh, there being an, an established industrial base, uh, proximity to venues for workforce training, uh, 
uh, would, would echo Maryland's uh, echoing of McKinsey's insights as it relates to workforce training and the corresponding availability of workforce. Uh, also looking at the total cost of product for import versus US manufacturing. And then also considering critical sectors for surety of supply like pharmaceuticals. So we'll be focusing on specific key supply chains. Perhaps we can get into that uh, in, in the discussion ahead. I would um, just underscore this point that again, I think is, is highlighted by the McKinsey port report. We think that one key to all of this succeeding is um, the fact that we are standing up a new, a new sourcing hub, um, which will provide data and insights and direct uh, assistance, uh, sourcing support, training, capacity building for US suppliers. So this hub will have merchants working directly with suppliers to identify opportunities and enhance capabilities. So it, it's, if you will, a, a center of excellence for the centers of excellence, that is the, the, the various American lighthouses. So Eric, let me again just say uh, kudos for the report uh, and the way it calls for this large scale, well-coordinated national strategy uh, to promote US manufacturing uh, competitiveness. We have seen firsthand in recent years how the, the disparate and varied nature of US investments and incentives in US manufacturing make it difficult to ensure long-term commitments to manufacturers and suppliers, and that much more to, to ensure their upskilling, their strengthening, their growth. So we have, a, we have $350 billion worth of confidence in the ecosystem approach to enhancing US manufacturing. We do think that the time is right to send the clearest possible demand signal to US manufacturers and suppliers that this, this national commitment to US manufacturing is real. By the way, we would love to marry this up with the emerging congressional and administration efforts uh, focused on US manufacturing. Thanks, Eric. No, Dan, it's wonderful to hear about Walmart's investment in US manufacturing ecosystems. Uh, that's terrific. I, you know, Katie, you know, you obviously have had the opportunity to look across industries. What have you seen as it relates to US manufacturing uh, across sectors? Well, I, um... Uh, couldn't agree more with with Dan and Marilyn about how you know COVID has really underscored the need to revitalize U.S. manufacturing for U.S. resilience, but also uh, as we found in our report for all of the different contributions that manufacturing makes to our economy and to our society. One of the things I would just highlight is that COVID has also accelerated a wholesale paradigm shift in manufacturing. So for the what we're seeing is great innovation in manufacturing processes. And this includes uh, things like uh, new biologics processes for biopharma production, cell and gene therapies, for example, um, but even for legacy industries, for example, uh, glass bottle manufacturers that are finding a way to create much smaller uh, ovens, if you will, such that they can create smaller and much more flexible production at low cost. We're seeing that kind of shift from traditional scale-based mass production to much smaller flexible production in all sorts of industries. And luckily uh, COVID I think has really accelerated uh, companies uh, embracing new technologies and particularly digital and analytics, which is a big part of the solution. So you're seeing changes in process technology 
coupled with the industry 4.0 technologies that are really creating a very different kind of manufacturing. And this presents a really exciting opportunity for the US. First of all, because it's a disruptive and therefore we can leapfrog into new ways of manufacturing. If you think about the archetypes that you shared, leveraging our strengths in the R&D based uh, uh, archetype to actually shift in more of our scale-based uh, kind of economy into the uh, flexible-based. I'll give you one example. One of the newest US uh, award winners from the World Economic Forum Lighthouse is uh, P&G's uh, site in Lima, Ohio. And they invested in uh, uh, digital twinning. By the way, P&G has always been a fantastic manufacturer, really at the uh, at the top end in terms of great lean manufacturing capability, great productivity, et cetera, uh, and um, uh, great customer responsiveness. But they took their site in Lima, Ohio to a whole new level by investing in digital twinning, advanced analytics, flexible robotics, and were able to uh, increase labor productivity. But more importantly, at the same time, they increased the ability to sync demand and supply by creating much more flexibility by 95%. That creates a whole new paradigm in terms of how they relate to customers like Walmart, right? In terms of the kind of flexibility that they can provide and the way they create value for their customers. And we're just seeing that across every single industry, more distributed production. Think about 3D printing of customized hips and knees in hospitals or cell and gene therapy that will be produced, customized, you know, and in a clinic. Um, all sorts of uh, examples of this. I can imagine Walmart having 3D printing for all sorts of products that could be customized. And so the whole definition of who's a manufacturer, where manufacturing occurs, uh, I think is changing. And this does create really exciting opportunities for the US because we are strong in R&D, because we uh, have the opportunity to leapfrog and because we have a very robust local market. So we actually can benefit by being close to demand. So I think this is an exciting opportunity, but it will, uh, as Dan and Marilyn said, require uh, national uh, strategic coordination on policy. It also requires US manufacturers to really lean forward into these new technologies. Uh, Industry 4.0 is now, uh, especially with the research that we've done on the, on the World Economic Forum lighthouses, it is proven, it is no longer hype. Um, there are many, many examples of just dramatic increases in productivity, flexibility, quality, environmental sustainability, but it is difficult to achieve that, those kinds of uh, returns. Many manufacturers are struggling uh, without getting the kinds of return on investment that they expect. And, and there are ways to overcome that, but we need to uh, really make sure that companies are embracing these new technologies and really moving us into the 21st century in our US manufacturing sites. No, that's great. No, thank you, Katie. And I, as, as, as you all have been talking, you, you've certainly primed the pump with our audience. So I've got a, a flood of questions. Um, you know, maybe Marilyn, if you don't mind, I'll go to you first. The, um, you know, the, with the onset of the, the COVID related pandemic, you know, the Department of Defense it was working very hard with the defense primes to accelerate payments so money would flow down to the small and medium enterprises and provide liquidity so folks could get through the COVID, um, the COVID, COVID window, particularly as some businesses that were relying on the commercial aerospace sector 
uh, were having their own liquidity challenges and needed needed sort of the the, the, the extra liquidity. How you know from your 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 sense, you know how important have those payments been? Um, and then how how long should they continue uh, to to shore up the small and medium enterprises in our industrial base? Well, Eric, those payments were absolutely critical at the outset and continue to be. I mean, when you think about the impact of the global pandemic and the the, the slowdown that happened around the rest of the economy, the defense industry is an essential business. I mean, our small and medium-sized businesses needed to keep working. In fact, for a company like Lockheed Martin, they represent 60 to 70% of our sales. They are doing the innovation, the manufacturing, all of the logistics and things that are so important to make sure that we meet our national security needs. And yet they, it was the props were knocked out from under them with the COVID uh, impact. And so uh, kudos to the Department of Defense in recognizing how important it was to get those funds to the small businesses and the large primes that where we had contracts with small businesses. It was our, our uh, effort to immediately pass on all of that to the small businesses and medium businesses. This, you know, when you consider what was required to address all of the safety for the employees to deal with the logistics and supply chain challenges that these companies faced, and the fact that, you know, their cash flow and everything was immediately impacted. Many of them do both commercial and defense business. Their commercial business went to zero practically. And so that had a tremendous impact on their financial situation. So, I, you know, it is important. Uh, we will continue to do it. And I, as, as an industry, the prime is passing that on down. And it's important that it continue uh, to help these uh, manufacturing firms in the defense industrial base. We've talked a lot in your study and among us about how critical this is for our nation. And we can't lose sight of the fact that, you know, these are businesses that, that they are hiring uh, off, off the economy and people, and they need to have the talent and they need to have the funds to pay their workers and to, to invest in the equipment and, and all of the manufacturing efforts that they need in order to keep their business going. Yeah, just to echo your, your points, Marilyn, I know when we did the 13806 report, you know, the thing that I, th I found most surprising was when you talk about the defense industrial base, folks automatically think about the large primes, the tier one suppliers. But really, when you got down to the tier four, tier three companies that were the small and medium enterprises, that's really where we were holding as a country so much risk that folks just didn't really fully appreciate. <laughs> um, and, uh, and liquidity, to your point, is an important part of helping solve helping solve those challenges. I, uh, you know, Katie and Dan, this one uh, may be for you, uh, Katie first. Uh, a question from the audience, bringing back manufacturing to the US is a great idea, um, but it's gonna require investments in things like robotics and AI, which may have impacts on employment. You know, how do we think about managing the potential unemployment from automation? Well, I don't think it's a zero sum game. Um, there is opportunity to increase the amount of production that we do in the United States will, will uh, increase jobs. Um, yes, we have to do this in a modern way. And so we would certainly want to embrace all of the tools and the technologies that drive competitiveness because we need a sustainably, globally competitive manufacturing base in the United States. Um, and the kinds of jobs that will be required in manufacturing uh, will change and are already changing. And this is why we see shortages of uh, skilled workers uh, in manufacturing. This is becoming a high-tech industry. Um, that said, there's some really hopeful things, um, I think, about 
the way employment will change in manufacturing. Uh, again, referencing what I think really is the best kind of database of uh, uh, the most cutting edge kind of modern manufacturing with the, with the lighthouse community. Um, one of the things we're seeing is uh, just tremendous investment in all of those companies in their existing workforces. Um, and so I'll, um, uh, there's several examples where uh, they provide kind of reverse coaching where kind of newer uh, colleagues come into uh, the manufacturing setting and provide coaching to the existing workforce on how to use digital tools uh, and new technologies. And the older workforce coaches the new ones uh, on how to actually make stuff. Um, and so finding this marriage between traditional uh, manufacturing, engineering, mechanical engineering, et cetera, and uh, digital and technology is um, you know, what, where we're seeing kind of this blending of skills happening. Um, all of the Lighthouse examples are quite worker-centric in that the technologies are to enable the front line to do more, to resolve pain points, to uh, in order, you know, increase their productivity. Um, the other thing we're seeing is that some of these technologies actually uh, empower frontline workforce without needing a lot of new skill building. So for example, we're seeing augmented reality where a workforce can actually use now visual tools in goggles or glasses or wristbands uh, and follow work instructions that are quite complex and that can be adapted and tailored to the situation without having to go into kind of classroom training uh, as they would have been uh, required to in the past. So um, there will be a lot of change in the way, uh, in the requirements uh, for workforce. Uh, we won't see the same kind of numbers of people in kind of operating machines but we will need to see people who are connecting the dots across end-to-end -end ecosystems uh, and really bringing data and analytics into uh, the decisions that are made on the factory floor every day. That's great. Uh, I know, Dan, what, what, do you th what are your thoughts? Uh, Katie put it uh, so well uh, and uh, spot on and, and thorough. Um, I, I would add, you know, we've, we, we are seeing um, in practice, what McKinsey has been highlighting for a couple of years, which is that as digital tools come online and autom automation moves forward, we're seeing that jobs don't go away, but the different activities that are part of a job evolve. And many of those activities can be, um, can be either addressed through technology or, um, or people no longer need to be undertaking those specific activities and are freed up to do more things of greater value. In our case, to be more customer facing, more customer engaged. Uh, we're finding as we're moving forward, blending physical and digital, that we're not, we're not needing a smaller workforce um, as we continue to build out these new omni kinds of jobs to help, to help address the needs of customers. We need we need the people, and we actually need as well to be focused on upskilling. So we have a significant workforce training capability that we brought online um, uh, at scale uh, around the country uh, that will actually marry up now with our American Lighthouse uh, initiative uh, as we look to to reshore. I'd say the other thing is is just we we have to be investing as part of this this reshoring as part of this, this US manufacturing uh, commitment, we have to be investing in supply chain efficiencies, which will mean looking at advanced manufacturing uh, and technology as Katie noted, 
uh, that will, will be promoting the scale and specialization so that uh, US made products can compete on price and value. That's gonna require people, that's gonna require uh, a skilled workforce. Uh, that's great. And I am uh, mindful of the clock here. So I may bundle a couple of the questions uh, we've got from the audience. Uh, Marilyn, maybe, maybe this one for you. Uh, you know, the confluence of COVID as well as some of the high profile supply chain disruptions and semiconductors, the cyber attack on the, on the colonial pipeline, um, and then the, the range of policy and legislative responses that are currently being contemplated uh, by Congress and the executive branch to include stimulus to states, uh, the potential infrastructure package. Is, is this a unique window or are we feeling something maybe different here? Absolutely, Eric. I'm glad that your audience asked that question because I think it's important for us to reflect on the state that we're in right now. We clearly, through your study and through why we formed this task force, know that we have, we have an urgency right now. We have got to get more competitive with our manufacturing base. We've got to invest in innovation. We have to invest in the infrastructure and manufacturing hubs and the skills and training and education for our manufacturing base. It is absolutely imperative for economic security, economic growth, as well as for our national security. And when you think about the fact that our states have received $195 billion in the most recent uh, COVID relief bill, and now the Biden administration, if, that, if the infrastructure uh, bill passes that they're contemplating, there's gonna be even more money flowing to the states. So I think it's really very important that our states take advantage of this unique moment, this rare opportunity to help accelerate what is needed in the manufacturing base, to invest in innovation, to help those companies that are in this area, to invest in training and education, to invest in the infrastructure that our manufacturing base needs in order for them to be uh, capable. You went through uh, a lot of the facts that you know private industry doesn't necessarily invest as much as other countries. Well, other countries, their governments are helping their manufacturing base and we need the same thing. There are bills that are looking at specific industries, but states now have a golden opportunity to accelerate what was needed to make our manufacturing base more robust. And they should partner with the government at this time and with industry to get those manufacturing hubs that will help the startups, that will help the innovation that we need to give the training and education grants or incentives to businesses to lighten up on and loosen up on some of the regulations so that, so that these manufacturing businesses, whether they're startups in an infancy or whether they're critical manufacturing that we absolutely have to shore up and make sure that we can meet the needs of our nation. So it, it's, a, it's a tremendous opportunity. And I, I encourage the states as they look at where they're gonna spend those funds to look at where, how they can help in this very urgent need in our manufacturing base. No, that's great. And, I, and Dan, obviously you, you've spent a career kind of in the intersection of policy and business. What's your sense? Uh, is this different now this time or potential to be different this time? I think Marilyn put it well. I think it's, it's, there's no hyperbole to say that it's historic, an historic opportunity in light of the, the extraordinary investments that have been made uh, in coming out of COVID. Also, the, I think, deepening, broadening consensus relating to U.S. manufacturing as, as an existential priority. Um, I, I, would, I would 
note candidly, I don't think the United States is very good at this, right? I mean, your, your strengths are your weaknesses. And, you know, as, as we freely innovate in a thousand different directions with such dynamism, that often comes with a corresponding lack of concentration of effort. And I'm really, really heartened to be part of, you know, this, this invaluable effort with the Reagan Institute facilitated by you all at McKinsey to, to see so many different sectors, so many different leaders across sectors, and to see so many on both sides of the aisle and both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue calling this out as, as, as an imperative. So um, we're not good at this, but I think we can get this right. And resources are frankly so flush that if we can just get it partly right, it will give us an extraordinary toehold and I think uh, catapult us forward. Great. Uh, hopeful, hopeful note. Um, and then maybe, Katie, last question for you. Uh, with the, respect to the task force, you know, we've had uh, three different sessions. Uh, we've had briefers, everything from semiconductors to submarines. Uh, what have you found most surprising uh, in those sessions thus far? Um, I think it's been really interesting to see, uh, again, how important the whole system is that has to work together. And I agree with Dan that this isn't something that, you know, we as a, as a society, as a, you know, political system, as an economic system are necessarily that great at kind of coordinating. Um, uh, and hopefully the free market uh, along with some pushes will, will help us to do that. But the importance of getting the capital market piece right, the importance of thinking about defense contracting in terms of long-term, uh, kind of stable demand, you know, forecasts, getting that right, getting the workforce training right, you know, all of these different pieces have to come together uh, and they sit in different places in corporations and they sit in different places of the government in terms of policy. Uh, and so I think, um, you know, one of the things that we hope to do with the task force is to really lay out what the agenda is that has to connect. Uh, and I know others are doing the same. I think that's uh, what I've really taken away from our session so far. Great. Now, well, and, and a hopeful note of what, what we all hope will be a terrific report and, and in many ways an extension of the work that we've done um, uh, coming this December. So uh, and hopefully in person in December. <laughs> Dan, Katie, Marilyn, thank you so much, uh, both for the panel as well as the contributions to the task force. And, and uh, uh, with that, I'll... Uh, I'll sign off and uh, hope everyone has a great rest of the day.